Today is February 21st, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Barbara Finley. Um, she's the William R. Keenan Professor of Psychology at Cornell University. Her lab combines evolutionary and developmental approaches to map structure and function of the vertebrate nervous system. Hi, Barb. How are you? Hi, nice to be here. Great. Around the room, we've got Gary Galfo. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Nicole Witta. Hello. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm hosting. I'm Salma Karashi. So, um, Barb, in 1995, you built a really ambitious initiative that mined huge numbers of anatomy studies to model how brain development of a broad range of species can be um, aligned along multiple parameters to see how different uh, brain development trajectories actually um, progress across taxa. And I want you to explain this better than I am, actually, because I always kind of get things a little off. So I want to spend some time on that. And then maybe have you um, talk a bit about what your model tells us about maybe um, about human exceptionalism. Um, so given your broad understanding now of brain evolution, is our brain really such an anomaly? Um, so and then after that, I was kind of hoping we could touch on um, about maybe the application of the evo-devo mindset to understanding the evolution of behavior and cognition. Um, you've written persuasively about that in the past, so I, th I think that would be fun to talk to with you. Uh, so first, so translating time is the name of this interactive database, I guess, which is now kind of expanding into its 2.0 version, mm -hmm. right? So what does, um, first describe it, and then if I do understand it correctly as an alignment, what, what does alignment of brain development tell us across taxa? Okay, well, um, the, it started out by uh, not having any particular applied uh, purpose at all, but I, I, I had been um, working in uh, developmental neurobiology and looking at how the brain gets organized, but I, I had been persuaded quite a while back by Glenn Northcutt at, uh, in San Diego that, that the thing that, had, that we really had to start doing was to understand the evolution of the brain by, under, by looking at its development. So... Um, I'd been working a lot in neurogenesis, and so I thought, well, let's just see if we can collect stuff about neurogenesis in different species. And um, I also like to read Stephen Jay Gould and uh, all those uh, uh, natural history essays that he wrote, and I was very persuaded by uh, his, his ideas about the sort of central part of development in understanding evolution. So... Um, so I, I started off to collect data on neurogenesis to um, to demonstrate what I was sure was there, which was a lot of uh, movement in developmental schedules to make uh, species with different kinds of brains. And um, and I so we collected our you know our first seven species and uh, neurogenesis, and I started working with uh, my collaborator Dick Darlington, who does all the stats. And, and and he comes. He's not a biologist at all. He wouldn't recognize a brain if he fell over in the hall. You know. I mean, <laughs> you know. So it's really kind of a, a complete just you know math on one side and biology on the other. Um, and uh, and so uh, so he said, you know, I'm really surprised that we could explain 99 percent of the variance with this simple model. And I said, what? And <laughs> and so it, it it turns out that that 
what I had expected to see was that the monkey would really change its visual system neurogenesis and the mouse would have all the sort of olfactory parts of the brain all changed around early on and said it was all the same schedule. And you could transform from one to the other by just basically in the truncated range we had there, just a simple linear transformation to change the schedule of a mouse to a monkey. You you basically turn a log dial, you know. Um, so what that meant was the order of all the events was pretty much just the same, and, and the only thing that changed to make a bigger brain was the, you know, interval between them. And so there were, um, you know, you've got bigger brains, you you know, put them on a Longer on a log course. scale. So. Um, so and, how did you can I yeah, interrupt? Yeah. So how did you decide on? So which events did you? Start with everything. Did, did, did we took start, no, there was, a lot. So were they then, anatomical hallmarks? Were they? This was this was all. So this was this was specifically neurogenesis, and it was almost entirely treated primarily neurogenesis. So that so this has been studies, and 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 as far as that goes, we didn't pick anything. We took everything that there was, as far as I am aware. So so there's never any. Um, data selection here of any kind. It's more like data sucking in everything possible, you know. So 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 far there's any kind of bias in the data, it reflects the bias of what people want to study in the neuroscience community kind of um, which is a big bias. Um, we we have a whole bunch of really big brain primates and a whole bunch of really small brain rodents. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's not the distribution of animals in the world. <laughs> you know, so um, so that that infects the data set. But anyway, we're just so what we have there is uh, that 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 uh, Poshko Rakesh had studied uh, that this is when the medial geniculate starts being formed in the monkey, and this is when the peak of neurogenesis is, and this is when it stops. And Altman and Bayer looked at the same thing in the rat, and Sibin had done it in the mouse, and and so we just figured out ways of sort of normalizing between you know making sure that we had our zeros and what beginning and end meant were pretty much the same and and just just collated the stuff and i at that point i thought neurogenesis was the, was the only thing we could possibly look at because it was really defined you can say that there is a peak and you can say that it did start here um uh generate an, an axon um you know finish synaptic stabilization you know that that starts to get a whole lot murkier um and also the, the the thing that I was talking about with brains was was about making the structure of them. So I was looking at things that was the duration of the length of the time you were actually generating neurons. So we had a you know quantifiable duration and a countable output. Um, but then we, we just said, well, let's just see everything else that we can actually convince ourselves that we can measure, you know, like when neuron death starts or something like that. Um, Let's see if if other things uh, uh, can be accommodated into the same model, um, and it, and it's really I'm not exaggerating at all. I just thought, well, of course this is going to be a complete mess. So one animal is going to you know generate its neurons and then not connect up and wait for a while until it needs it, and then damned if it didn't start getting get better, <laughs> you know. So the more the more data we added, uh, which you would. This is normally what you're expecting if you're, you know, drawing data for some sort of normal distribution, but not if you think you're drawing from something that's, uh, 
you know, has all kinds of components to it. The, the, the more data we got, the better it was. But in this case, the data is going into, you know, getting all these things that are still quite measurable. You can say that at this point there were no axons, and at some later point then there, and then the tracks start growing. We've, we've learned how to kind of digitize a lot of continuous functions. Um, so, you know, so if you have a growth curve, curve for a brain, you don't want to add in hundreds of points for that growth curve. So we had to decide, okay, we're going to, we basically put in deciles, which usually captures the, you know, most of the features of most developmental curves. Um, and so, so far, um, uh, with the with with the exception of birth and the wave of synaptogenesis that, a, that accompanies birth, which follows birth around, um, everything that we've measured at now, up including these early postnatal events and things that are involving the brain, not the body, all keep getting better and more predictable the more data we add, which is I think just extraordinary. It's not at all what I expected, um, and. Uh, uh, but that's that's it, it seems as if there's this very um, conserved structure for deploying all these parts in the brain that that that's that I would guess is you know common to mammals and probably uh, you know in a basic way common to a lot more. So one pro- part of the yeah. problem was yeah. to figure out what's the correct order mm-hmm. because you have a bunch of events, but you don't know necessarily the intrinsic mm-hmm. order. I mean, obviously, for any but we know that any one species what they are. Well, you knew that neurogenesis began mm-hmm. middle and end mm-hmm. ought to be in that order, mm-hmm. but you don't really know whether cerebellum neurogenesis mm-hmm. ought to be in before lateral geniculate or after a priori. You don't know mm-hmm. that. Well, well I mean, in any one species, we this would. This is an experimental piece of data yeah. that you would know. Yeah. yeah. But when you lay out that event, mm-hmm. uh, your event scale, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you, had a, you discovered what the order of things are. Um, well, first off, if I'd taken any one animal's order of events as they were described there, they would have been correlated 9.95 with that scale. So, well, that's what exactly what I was trying to yeah, say. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm not going to be able to ask this question. Yeah. So, so, so basically, the, the translating time one, one point was um, we just you know so we have a matrix of times for all these events you know generate this structure and we have it in mouse and monkey and and, and to get then we just figure out a mean in in the first model. So then, so we're, so we just got this sort of a normalized mean time that the structure is being produced across our then seven animals, and so so that's just the actual order in which they were shown to occur. There's nothing fancy about it. Okay, that's the linear, averaged order. Does that make sense? No. No. Okay. So I think I I, I mean yeah. I understand what you yeah. said, but I think it's related to my questions. Anyway. I think yeah. But then the, well, what we've done in this model is to is to have a have this iterated, somewhat more powerful thing. Try to generate the a curve for each of the eighteen species simultaneously with the best event scale for the species, which turns out to be pretty much exactly the same old linear scale with those couple things that I pointed out that just didn't fit. And I think those are essentially either errors or evolutions. <laughs> so one error and one evolution actually. So kind of. But does that mean? I mean, I think there is a real order. They said things did occur at a particular time in the mouse, 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will make one more try yeah, at this. So. It seems yeah. to me that um, what that basically what you've shown is that the order of events in brain development is the same across all of those species. Mm -hmm. So the event scale that's right for one species that makes a straight line mm -hmm. is the same event scale in another species exactly. that makes mm -hmm. a straight line with mm -hmm. a different slope. Mm -hmm. So um, what you're emphasizing is the fact that there is an event scale that gives you the straight mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. But what seems to me to be a cool result mm -hmm. is knowing what are the actual order of things in the mm -hmm. event scale because mm -hmm. that it is a obligatory order of in which the brain gets built. Mm -hmm. right, so this yeah. thing tells the obligatory order in which the brain gets mm -hmm. built. The brain cannot mess with it. You can't build the brain in mm -hmm. some, you can't build the brain in some other order. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me just by looking at those mm -hmm. events, we would understand the dependencies, the developmental yeah. dependencies among the various things that go yeah. into building the brain. Yeah, that's and knowing the developmental dependencies of that mm -hmm. uh, would sort of tell you that mm -hmm. the the recipe for how to mm -hmm. build a brain. It's, mm -hmm. First, you've got to build this. And then you got to build that, yeah. and then you got to build that. Yeah. You can't reverse that order, yeah. or something will go wrong. Yeah, there's some, yeah, there's 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 some there's a there's some really boring aspects to that. Like you can't die before you're born, and think you know that kind of thing. You can't have an axon before you're generated. So there's that one. Yeah, that's you, know, you know. So yeah. So <laughs> so the, the question is trying to figure out which which are the boring ones and which are the interesting ones. You know, in, in that thing. So some of the you know some of the high uh, you know predictability in this scale. Has to be true, you know, because there you can't be eighty percent before sixty percent stuff like that. But then, but the, the interesting stuff is okay. So, why do you always generate those primary sensory areas of the thalamus first? You know, over all these animals. Now that's that strike that strikes me as unnecessary. You know, in any kind of like boring sense of you have to you know be born before you can die, um, and you know so it, <laughs> you know so. So, so yeah, there like huge surprises yeah, in that order, or other people found the, the one thing that that's, that is that does surprise me is that it looks like a lot of times the development will go to a lot of trouble to keep an order that clearly doesn't make sense. You know, in a funny way. So uh, I don't remember stuff about waiting periods and generate and generation of the cortex. So um, you know, in, a, in an animal with a short developmental period, like a mouse, you have. Um, you know, you're going to be generating the thalamus, and then uh, you're going to be generating the cortex and growing out the axons, and these are, you know, within days of each other, and so given a little time for axon growth, it's, you know, going to be ordered, but essentially simultaneous. You know, so, but then you pull that apart in a, you know, a monkey or a cat or something like that, and what you have happening is that the the, the neurons in the cortex are generated two weeks before the neurons from the, the axons from the thalamus or is it the other around? No, sorry. The, the the neurons generate their axons in the thalamus two weeks before the neurons and the cortex actually are going to get there. So they sit there under the the cortical plate, waiting for the neurons to actually migrate through them, get there, and then they innervate. So don't you think these are instructive cues? Mm -hmm. huh? Non-cell autonomous instructive cues. Uh, oh, so you're you're offering a mechanism for yeah. why the, the order is <laughs> no, 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 what you caught me is yeah. that you mentioned uh, I got caught up on it that uh, things mm -hmm. don't make sense. 
doesn't make sense to us, but it makes sense to the system. Oh yeah, so yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so true. That's me. Did anything surprise me? So why would it? I would expect it. It's a bad design feature to, you know, put cells that are trophically dependent dependent on each other, and then generate one, and then wait two weeks for the other cells to show up. You know, I mean, it just doesn't seem. Like the most economical. These maybe complicated schedules that have obligatory steps. Yeah. If you're building a building, the mm -hmm. same thing happens where mm -hmm. this this mm -hmm. craft is waiting for that. Those mm -hmm. guys. I brought my plumbing into the room. Mm -hmm. Now I have to wait for them to do this before I finish putting the plumbing mm -hmm. in the room. And the bigger the building, the more wait states mm -hmm. there are, mm -hmm. and there are more situations where everybody's. Uh, deadlocked, mm -hmm. waiting for the for the other person, yeah. and so building the time to build a building increases nonlinearly with the yeah. size of the building, and yeah. that uh, no, that's the, the same point. thing happens in non-parallelizable yeah. uh, yeah. computations where mm -hmm. wait states have to be put in to wait mm -hmm. for one thing to mm -hmm. finish before the next thing can start. Mm -hmm. The bigger the computation, the the mm -hmm. steeper the mm -hmm. curve. Yeah, that's start. an interesting. That's a really interesting point. Gary, are you thinking yeah. that this ha is yeah. related to the sensory yeah. motor system that you're looking at? I mean, yeah, so there's a lot. I mean, you have mm -hmm. like waves of, yeah, there, there are a group of neurons that are waiting for its mm -hmm. functional partner, mm -hmm. right? And it'll only, um, it becomes its functional partner because of this early developmental mm -hmm. interaction. Mm -hmm. So that, that these group of neurons that are waiting, mm -hmm. you know, there are other waves of mm -hmm. neurons that are going by, mm -hmm. but they're very selective. They're waiting mm -hmm. two weeks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. if, they, if they tag the first group of neurons, you wouldn't have a functional system, mm -hmm. so it's waiting. So there's mm -hmm. some kind of chemoattractive mm -hmm. uh, ligand receptor interaction mm -hmm. that's complementary to mm -hmm. that functional unit. Mm -hmm. So to me, it, it just makes sense mm -hmm. for it to wait until the mm -hmm. right bus comes along. To yeah, get I mean, it, it, makes, it makes functional sense. I guess it was mostly, you know, I, I took the question as sort of starting from sort of the time features of the organization, the system. If you were organizing this thing to be perfectly efficient in the only the temporal aspects, would you do it that way? No, you wouldn't. But that you're absolutely right. That's not the only thing to consider. You're trying to build some thing, you know, and it, it, it has to make those particular connections and I guess, I guess one of my point my points is that it's not that the it's not that the you know the components that are going to act that, that their appearance and so forth is just so sort of it's it's not like precognition on the part of the you know first nervous system to evolve to know how those things were eventually going to scale in a larger nervous system. So, so this, so even with these couple deviations like the waiting period that goes, this the, the surviving developmental schedule is the one that scaled. <laughs> you know, and that, I think that's the figure out why that's the case. There must have been a lot of animals back, you know, in the. Cambrian or so, who had, who managed to deploy a small nervous system, but when they had a chance to get in some other niche and tried to reconfigure it, it couldn't be. Or, you know, so we've got this, I think we have a selection on scalability. And so when I see something that looks a little bit surprising in timing, like that waiting period, then I, I pay a lot of attention to that. Because it's kind of unusual yeah. that you would be able to scale, just speed everything up. I mean, it's yeah. the inference that nothing takes any length of time, mm -hmm. in the sense that mm -hmm. 
you don't have a you don't have to wait a certain fixed amount of time for something to play mm -hmm. out because you can speed it up. Mm -hmm. Everything speeds up and slows down mm -hmm. together. I mean, without screwing up the order, mm -hmm. right? So if you had something that mm -hmm. took a lot, a, a fixed, if there was a bottleneck in time that this mm -hmm. process took so long. In a fast developing nervous system, that process would still take that long, and you mm -hmm. couldn't speed speed that up, mm -hmm. right? And so then you would have non-uniformities in, in the timing mm -hmm. of all these different processes. And maybe you that would switch the order. So mm -hmm. one thing depended on that being finished mm -hmm. and something else didn't. It would go ahead. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be no problem. But the results would say that that's not really mm – -hmm. there, there aren't any like event-like mm -hmm. bottlenecks. You can just speed things up in the mm -hmm. mouse. They get there in a couple of days from otherwise and otherwise they wait two mm -hmm. weeks. So well, I, I kind of think that speeding the, the, the fast – well, the – well, I suppose like the, the 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 marsupial and the mouse ones, the small animal ones are probably the basal state. You know that that's where things are starting from. So I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that we got anything that's really speeding up that much. Everybody's slowing down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah. So, uh. so what's the importance of birth in all this? So, so you would deploy the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. this gestational period that's variable dependent on how mm -hmm. big the scale of the nervous system is going to be. And mm -hmm. then birth happens, and then you don't see any change in the in the trajectory after birth, even though you have a totally different sensory and motor milieu for the nervous system. Is that right or no? Not quite right. So, um, and there, yeah, so, there, so you can be born at all these different points. And one thing I that, that really is a big part of this picture is to understand what the constraints on, you know, organ generation other than brain and how those have to intersect. But um, the animals that are have a very late birth with respect to maturity um, have already had a different kind of development. Um, and that was the unexpected thing I, I talked about. Um, so, so what happens was that if you take similarly sized mice, the spiny mouse that is born quite at a mature state, and a regular mouse, for some peculiar reason, the spiny mouse spends close to, well, since three weeks generating its brain primordia, which it could perfectly well do, because the other mouse does it in nine days, and then, and then it zips through its brain organization. Um, in, in the remaining time that it has. So so the very animal that would think that you would need a whole lot of time for it to organize its interactions doesn't give itself much time. Um, and I have no explanation for that, and I would love to hear anybody has got any kind of reason why that ought to be true. I mean... Uh, but there's no inflection point on the curve. That's what you were thinking, is there ought to be a kink on the curve when birth happens because something kicks in then. Mm -hmm. But there's no. The curve is smooth all the way through yeah. the birth point. Yeah, and also that, uh, you know, so, I mean, if you think of the behavioral state of, you know... Uh, of a mouse at birth, or uh, you know, compared to a rhesus monkey, you know, or the, you know so the mouse is blind and um, well, not blind, but eyes haven't opened yet, um, and uh, can hearing does some olfactory stuff, but you know, it, its its nervous system is still under basic construction. Half the cells aren't even in place yet, whereas. Um, basically, in all primates, all the cells have been there for months um, by the time of birth. 
So it's a just a whopping big difference in in maturation, and there's no. I guess as as long as you got somebody to take care of you uh, for that first bit, it's all right. I don't. Know. <laughs> so, so I have a question, kind of <clears throat> two related questions that yeah. going off on Charlie's thing. So. Uh, let me understand. So, when when an animal is born, there's no inflection. Does that suggest that uh, these mechanisms are determined genetically, right, and that the environment really has nothing to do with it, right? And going back, since you said that the slopes of the various species are essentially identical, just variation. Can you study a lower species now that we're in the uh, bioinformatics genomics mm -hmm. age? and understand gene expression with respect to development and time mm. for lower species, since the slope doesn't change mm -hmm. that much, and the, this process is conserved, can you now mm -hmm. make a correlation and put the events in developmental mm -hmm. order with respect to the gene? gene expression? I, I, uh, that, I Does that make sense? That, yes, I, I, I tried to do it, and I got completely schooled on that uh, particular experiment. <laughs> so, so I, yes, <laughs> yeah, so um, I thought, this is, in fact, this is perfect. I thought, uh, you know, here I got my database, there's this database over there, I'll put all databases together, big giant database, you know, because there's all the Alan brain, data, brain analysis for the developmental expression in mice and, and all that. Um, so what could be simpler? And not only that, I'm not even trying to come up with a sort of end event like autism. All I need to do is, you know, tell me the genetic events that accompany, you know, uh, crossing the optic chiasm, you know, I mean, something really <laughs> specific. Um, so, so I sent a student to uh, so go to the, you know, the mouse and the monkey brain atlases, and we had, and found a, a bunch of uh, developmental events in the visual system that were had been studied a lot for their cell biology, like what particular thing, you know, intracellular stuff directs the crossing of the optic chiasm or the recognition process when they reach the midbrain where where they knew what a lot of the intracellular signals were, and so. Semester goes by, students doing zip. I'm getting pissed. Excuse me, I'm getting angry about the uh, the whole uh, uh, rate of progress on everything. And and then then I try to what I've I've actually assigned this student to do is impossible. Um, so you go back to this thing for this this particular tissue, and you find that there is not there are not like two or three genes. There are 100, 150 genes that are changing their state at that point in the tissue at that time. And so this this notion that we can then sort of translate from these cellular events to a genetic there's no genetic event there's a multidimensional genetic state and I'm not saying that this couldn't be studied but it's not an event in in the sense that I'm putting events in this in the sequence of development I can say that you know crossing a chiasm is something that you can see and it's an event but that multi-dimensional state of, of gene expression in that optic nerve at that time is not recognizable by human beings with as a state yet, <laughs> you know. And and so it's, I, I so all, all of a sudden I really understood uh, what a, a real genomic description of development would be, what it would be like, and it's not my first thing, and we could just go in and find out what's expressed then, and then it'll be all clear. It's going to be this really complex, chaotic, chaotic, dynamic thing that uh, somebody else better have the math to do. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, I don't, I, 
I, I was I was just so deeply surprised by that that uh, I'm, I'm still trying to work my way around that. I mean, so I know there are cases where you can find that you know this this particular thing produces that particular protein in a nice. But I don't, I don't think that's the real typical state in development when you're, you're talking about this gigantic genetic context for some process to go forward. It's funny because it seems like yeah. an inversion yeah. of, uh, yeah. what you're talking about is kind of an inversion of mm-hmm. our kind of preconceived mm-hmm. notion that you have this genetic plan, mm-hmm. that this would, would genetic state would be make the next event in development, mm-hmm. and it should be ordered in a way that seems pretty nice. And then the, all these complicated things about this happening at this part of the brain being related to this other part of the brain should be all kind of messed up and screwed, screwed up in different species. And it's actually the opposite kind of way. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know, we don't yeah. know enough about the genetic stuff, but that all these macro events are really, really preordained and there's all this mess and complication mm-hmm. at the, the lower level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Don't give up, Todd. <laughs> yeah. So what's the bottom line of all of us that we basically aren't that different, we aren't that special? Is that true? Um, Is that right to say? Well, I, the, the way I've come to think about it is... Um, the, the way I started the, thinking about the locus of evolution of brains would be in, you know, really close to, um, in the brain, the, the, the part that you thought was doing that function, you know. So if you, you know, if you wanted language evolution, you needed to look in the adult part of the brain where language eventually is resides or where the mechanisms of language production that you'd see in fMRI would would appear okay and I've, I've come to think that that's just not the way to understand the brain um, that you don't look for special circuitry in those areas that, that I'm thinking that the kind of stuff that I'm looking at with these translating time things and with the conservation of development allometry is is we're looking at the, at the these you know big kind of computational sort of hardware constraints on what what's a computational computational system that's scalable and evolvable it has certain kinds of properties um, and so so we're descri- so what I'm this part of the research is describing um, kind of the cross species mainframe and how you have to construct that thing okay and and there's a lot of stuff in in robotics and computational neuroscience these days that there, there's some kinds of structures that do scale and there's some that don't and you you know there's some principles that people are realizing if you want to have stuff that you can either add or subtract memory from without killing it computationally there's not an unlimited number of structures that will do that so so that's one thing but then then there's this other whole half of how then how do you get individuation and species differences of brains well where are the real differences um and to me there's two big classes there's sensory and motor periphery so you can have you can be, you know, hopping or flying or all that kind of thing. You can have all different kinds of sensory systems with different amounts of specialization, wildly different across animals, but still looked at by the same brain. Okay, um, and what you're interested in. So the, the, there's all this stuff about the sort of churning and the kind of motivational substructure of the brain. What does that an- animal fill its brain with? What is it interested in doing? What does it search out? So the, right from the very start, the brain is constructing itself through its attentional and motivational systems with 
what it wants to learn about in an evolutionary sense. So, so we've got this real basic, you know, useful for everybody kind of structure that has these two different ways of becoming variable. I think one by what kind of peripherals it has, basically, than, than what it wants wants in an evolutionary sense to do, whether it wants to pay attention to its social world or whether it wants to get out there and flounder on its own for a while and, you know, hunt for grubs or, you know, whatever its particular. Uh, so so I think, I think we've been looking for um, evolution in brains in the wrong place a lot of the time, um, that, that you, you don't look for it in this basic computational structure, but rather in um, what it's allowed to put into that and how it's allowed to organize it. So how do hmm. cognitive scientists incorporate that into... Well, half of them really hate that. <laughs> yeah, you wrote, in 2007 you wrote this really persuasive position paper, it was almost like a scolding in um, developmental science, um, uh, trying to get psychologists and cognitive scientists to use mm-hmm. some evo-devo approaches. Yeah, yeah. And so if that was a, no, that a was while a, ago now, so how's it going? No, that, was, that was widely uncited. Um. <laughs> 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 Any thoughts to return to that? Uh, well, I've been doing the best best I can. And to to um, it's very hard to um, persuade the average cognitive scientist or cognitive neuroscientist that um, what they really should be concerned with is motivation, because um, that's not what they study. <laughs> you notice that uh, um, that uh, it. So, so most people that are interested in the the structure of language, or, or you know, you know, math or whatever, or whatever, they're they're interested in in that subject and its structure and so forth, and they they're they're interested in how that structure is realized in the brain. They're not interested in whether necessarily it's not what drew them to the subject in the first place about how mother inter- interactions are going to make that structure get in the brain, and that if that's the critical. Thing. So if it's the baby trying to influence its mom that makes it babble and um, makes it sort of stumbling that language structure, that's not what the you know psycholinguist bought into. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, so I think there's this sort of a, a real disconnect between uh, why people are drawn to a certain kind of research and, and what might be the... I don't know if that does that make sense. Even emphasis on how systems are built rather than how they function once they're mm-hmm. built. Is I think I'm, I'm, I think that the reason why that this hasn't, I mean, it's the, let's assume for argument that I'm right about this, and this is the way to understand why a human rather than a chimpanzee would develop language. It has to do with what the the baby is really interested in doing, <laughs> um, and not exactly how much brain they have. Um, or, or a, you know, linguistic module in the cortex someplace. Um, that I just thought that, that there's an interaction between um, this argument and and the skills and interests of the scientists who are working in the organization of cognition. <laughs> they just don't tend to be often the same. Yeah. So I have a question. Yeah. I'm finally confirming that. <laughs> Cognitive neuroscientists. Mm-hmm. It's either I would ask the same question mm-hmm. to the Dalai Lama, 
Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, getting back to higher cognitive functions such as the frontal lobe, you know, we can uh, dream about religion, we can dream about forward thinking, we can dream about the next chess movement, right? You talk about evolutionary, evolutionary, evolutionary conservation, gene structures, and things like that. So can we learn some of these... Uh, um, forward-thinking behavior of the frontal lobe, uh, studying lower organisms, for example, C. elegans. What can the C. elegans <laughs> tell us about oh, yeah. forward-thinking no. and the frontal lobe? Uh. They have a You're making it hard. You're making it hard by going yeah, to C. Elegans. I could, I could do this. I could have made a Socratic going down to C. Elegans. No, no. I'm going to get straight to the point. No, this, can, this, is, this is easy. Yeah. This, is, this is it. So this is an ad. Uh, you know, check out the uh, article by Andy Clark in the... Uh, uh, in BBS, uh, in Behavioral and Brain Sciences recently. Um, so... So it's it's not the case that, um, that that we're the animals that discovered prediction. The point of the of any nervous system is always prediction. Okay, um, it doesn't. So what you would you, if any nervous with nervous any animal with a sensory system actually. So what you would like to do if you have any learning capability whatsoever is to get a little ahead of reaction by predicting what is coming next. So. Um, so basically, the, the more and more brain you get, the more and more elaborate your forward models get. And, and so um, it's a whole different conversation, but you can, uh, you can build an elaborate, concrete argument that everything that you are looking at at this moment is literally a construction. Um, you know, that, that you... That there's no color perception in the periphery of vision, for example, you put it there, you know, just per your past. So you're, you're doing this, this elaborate statistical analysis all the time of what, you know, academic room environments tend to be like, and you've populated your perception with that. Um, so, so this has got to work C. elegans mouse at any level. And the one thing that's really cool about the scaling stuff um, for example, the thing I mentioned about the, the thalamus and the sensory things first. So, um, um, in a mouse, um, the input to the primary visual center, the lateral geniculate, is um, about, you know, I'll probably get this wrong, but let's say 30, 30% retina and the rest something else. Okay, if you go to a Monkey-sized visual system, the amount of input that's retinal to the primary visual center is under 5%. The rest of it is all downstream from the cortex. So, so the, the bigger the brain, the, sort of the less the, the sort of structurally less the immediate input is contributing to the perception and the more the historical, which is predictive, aspect is dominating the, the perception. So it starts with the C. elegans, and, and the more brain you got, the more you predict, and it just, I think, should work all the way through. Does that work? Excellent. We all are. Well, thanks for being with us, Barb Finley. This has been Neuroscientist Talk mm -hmm. Shop. Perfect.